Drive to the pass. Hold it. Defense. Number 33. Five-yard penalty. Automatic. First down. to the officiating podcast with Roger Goodgroves here on the 4th and Inches podcast network. Now, don't check your podcast listening apparatus just yet. Your ears aren't deceiving you. I am not Sukdeep Puni. Your regular host couldn't be here this week, so I'm afraid you're stuck with me, Ryan Edwardson, the newbie from the NFL flagship show. But wait, before you pull out those headphones in despair, I can assure you that here with me today is the main man. He's the chief zebra. That's right. It's Roger Goodgroves. How are things going, Roger? I'm very good, Ryan. Yes. Been a good week so far. Yes, very For a much. change, we're recording on a, on, on a Monday night rather than the Tuesday. So we haven't quite got the week in the bag yet. Um, so one more game to go. Well, yeah, no, two but, more games to go. Yeah, Keep two more. getting that pushed off game, if it happens. Yes, we're recording this on Monday, a hot off the crazy action of Sunday in Thanksgiving week, which has seemed, like you said, like a very long week. It indeed. Does. <laughs> Uh, Roger, there was a lot of thrills and spells yesterday. Was there anything that stood out to you from the week in general? I thought the week in general was pretty pretty good, actually. Um, there was a couple of things that people queried, and some because they just don't understand, some because they legitimately feel aggrieved, and we can get onto some specifics of those depending on the teams in question. Yes, yeah, so we're here to pick over all the bones of some of the bigger officiating decisions of the week. And as we count down the games left in the regular season, the decisions often end up looking and feeling a bit more impactful than those that happen in the early weeks, especially when the games get close like they did this week. So as an official yourself, Roger, do you feel that the pressure of the decisions you make later on in the season are worse than the pressure of those in the early weeks? I think if anybody said to you that a big game doesn't bring big pressure, they'd be lying. Either that or they don't care, and that would be a worst of the two. Um, it's inevitable that big game brings big pressure. You have to step up, make sure that you don't forget the things you've learned earlier on in the season, and you still continue to officiate in the same way. Don't get sort of clouded by the big game. Good answer, good answer. So we've got eight talking points from this week's action, and funnily enough, three of them come from the same close game. It was the Arizona Cardinals being pipped at the post by the New England Patriots. And we'll try and deal with these incidents in chronological order, Roger. So the first was a big play, a big swing play, with New England returning a punt for a touchdown, only for it to be negated by a penalty for a blindside block. Now, we often see a lot of random penalties on special teams, blocks in the back, for example, but maybe you could just start off by explaining the definition of what a blindside block actually is nowadays. Sure. Well, let's step back a year or two. Blindside blocks have been something that have been illegal in the past. However, the rules for blindside blocks were tightened up this year. So basically, the the definition of a blindside block is a block that's made back towards or parallel to your own goal line and end line. Normally, what they're trying to do is they're trying to take out the play where a defender's chasing somebody and the person from that person's team 
is attacking that person from the other direction. And therefore they're chasing, looking towards tackling somebody and suddenly from nowhere, somebody comes and blows them up. They're not prepared for it. They're in a defenseless position. Therefore they're trying to protect those people as much as possible. Now, previously the blindside block definition limited the, the foul for a blindside block, because not all blindside blocks are illegal, and that's that's an important differentiation that we need to make. So the, in the past, the foul for a blindside block was illegal if you hit to the head and neck area of that person you were blocking. Same definition that would be used for other defenseless players like receivers in the process of catching a pass, quarterback in the process of passing, etc. Um, so that's what the old definition used to be. And you did see quite a few blindside blocks that were legal uh, in the old definition. Somebody came out of nowhere, took the player off his feet, made some great looking plays. It's some of the things that the uh, uh, fans of American football have always loved. And I think this is one of the reasons why this one doesn't sit so well for people. However, again, to look at the way American football is changing, we need to recognise that the area of concussion is one that will come throughout the game. And we've seen defenseless players' protection. We've seen quarterbacks getting more and more protection. Hits to the head and neck area are an area that will be clamped down on even more so. However, the general principle behind um, reducing the probability of a dangerous um, hit is when somebody isn't expecting it, they're not braced for it their body takes that blow and, and doesn't do anything to try and shock absorb it. Um, and that's really where it's coming from. Why blindside box slightly different now in that it is a foul even when it's to somewhere other than the head neck area. Because you can get taken off your feet, your, your body's basically limp at this stage and hits the ground and the ground can cause concussion type symptoms just as easy as a, a hit to the head and neck area. So this is the background where it's coming from. And the blindside blocks have been tightened up in all areas of football, everything from peewee right the way through to college and now to the NFL. Um, the NFL's got one of the strictest ones at the moment, so they're leading the field in some ways in blindside blocks, with the exception that you don't get disqualified for the hits um, to the head and neck area that you would do in college. So take this um, play in uh, the Arizona-New England game. I mean, the punt return looks great. I mean, the long, long returns are always great because, you know, lots going on, lots of blocks to try and watch at the same time as the run, lots of different cuts all going on at the same time. So it's from an officiating point of view, kicks are a nightmare um, because everything's all over the place and you're trying to cover 22 people with seven um, officials on the NFL game so inevitably you're looking for areas to to cover blindside blocks in terms of then coming back to this New England um, foul it is a blindside block if you block back with forcible contact a key word in there towards your own end line or parallel to your own end line now a number of people have looked at this block in the New England game and said well the defender or the uh, person that's on the, the return team, let's put them that way because it's a bit easier to differentiate. The person on the return team wasn't running towards his end line. He stopped and then blocked the player that was coming towards him. Now, 
the stopping doesn't absolve you of this. It's not a case of you're running towards your end line. It is blocking towards your end line that is the foul and with forcible contact. Uh, and that forcible contact needs to be certain things. It's head, shoulder, uh, forearm type contact. So it's not just running into the person. It's running into the person with specific parts of your body and specific direction. And here we had a classic blindside block and it, it was good that it was called, I know people don't like it, but it does meet all the definitions of the play um, for the foul that should be called. Uh, he is making forcible contact, took the player off his feet. Doesn't matter if the player could see him coming, the player was chasing down the returner. So his concentration is elsewhere, um, not fully on where the block is going to be coming from. And he was taken off his feet with forcible contact and that forcible was made towards the end line so correct call even though people don't like it and you'll see more of them uh, blindside blocks will become more and more uh, an area of concentration and teams aren't coached how to avoid those blindside blocks and this is a crucial thing all the nfl teams have had coaching from the officiating department about how to avoid being called for these blocks and those methods are to use your hands so there's no harm in hitting with your hands to that oncoming player. And if you imagine the physics of it, if I stand still, somebody's coming running towards me, they're not looking for me. They're not looking to brace for me. I can quite easily take them off their feet by just pushing them or just turning my back to them, just screen them out like, you know, a basketball move. They are not going to get to the person they're chasing because of me. I'm going to screen them out. So you don't have to try and kill them. <laughs> which is what they're trying to avoid. Now, this wasn't your traditional blindside block, which, you know, um, leaves somebody in hospital type blindside box, which we might have seen in the past. So this, I think, one another reason why people aren't too keen on it, but it does meet all the definitions and the player had other choice. And that's the key thing. He had other choices not to take the player out in the way that he took. He could have achieved the objective in what he did. Yeah, I think when I first saw it in real time, I was kind of appalled at the, the size of the hit because it was big. It was a big hit in the end. And also that it actually got called because I didn't think there was anything really wrong with it at first until you yeah. explained that it's it's more about the orientation of the players. He's blocking, facing his own end zone that kind of makes it against the rules nowadays. I think you will see, um, as I said, this is a change of the rule. And obviously, when you try and write a rule, the wording for the rule is quite important because officials are very specific in the wording that's used, as well as the approved rulings that they're given by their supervisors, or in the case of the top bod at the, and the NFL, Walt Anderson nowadays, who's the head of officiating from a day-to-day -day perspective. And they will give guidance on what should and shouldn't be. And now I've seen some of those guidances for the NFL this year, and you know that, that is a blindside block, and it will be uh, supported by the league I have no doubt of that that it will be supported uh, Dean Blandino I think was on the um, broadcast and he said he didn't love it and people have interpreted that as he disliked it now, that's not quite the same thing and um, not loving a call means I, I could say for example that wasn't how the blindside block was intended the intent of the rule but it was a correct call and there are two different things to do. So I don't love it because, you know, it isn't what we're trying to get out of the game specifically, but equally it does meet the definition and was rightly the FL called because it did. Yeah, I think when it when it's one of those interpretations and it takes a touchdown off the board, people are going to get very antsy about things. <laughs> Indeed, especially New England fans who are so used to the, the referees calling the games for them. Or so everybody else assumes.
But to be honest, as a Seahawks fan and that going for the Cardinals, I wasn't very impressed. So, no. yeah, but no, I, th- I think I think you're right. He, he stops, he's facing his own end zone and then he, he just puts the shoulder in a little bit too much. If he just yeah. stood there and screened him, yeah, you know, going to might get into the end zone. But well, we'll see. We'll see. So the next play is uh, probably a bit more of a technical point for you is offsetting pass interference calls between Stefan Gilmore and Hopkins. And they were going at it all day long, weren't they? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong, you know, receivers and defenders going at it. And that's part of the game. And, you know, you see in the NFL, you know, they're strong, they're big um, receivers, defenders, and they will be pushing off each other. And there are things you can do that are legal to push off. Um, and there are things you can do that aren't legal to push off and uh, create space. So what we had was the, 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 the receiver initially created space to catch the ball by pushing the defender away. So that was the pass interference that's the offensive side of the, the equation. And then once the receiver was beaten, he then tried to come back into that space by pulling the arm of the defend of the, the receiver and that was his example of pass interference on the defensive side of things so you don't often see them called as offsetting pass interference calls so it's a, a rarity from that point of view normally there's a bit of hand fighting and then they, if it goes a little bit too far but it's even then it won't be called it's just part of the the game but when you get some clear um, two separate fouls then it will be called as two separate fouls I think, yeah, you can officially class this one as six of one, half a dozen of another, really, can't you? Yeah. Definitely. And the net result is, you know, uh, they replay the down, which is a fair and equitable. Yeah, exactly. Solution. It's fair. It's, so, it's, it's... Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the defender, if the defender was smart, should have probably seen that the flag was thrown for the push-off. And Neaton have actually taken the, the receiver out um, in that way, and therefore the ball fell incomplete. And it would have been the next down as it is, um, they get to repeat the down. So, but yeah. in the motion, it's easy to say in hindsight than in yeah, the they, ha- they happen so quick, don't they? Uh, and then our final piece of play from this game came with just one minute left in the game. Cam Newton desperately trying to get his team downfield and into position for a field goal, takes the ball, runs with it as he had been doing literally all game long, and heads towards the left touchline. He's a about to go out of bounds and gets hit by Isaiah Simmons. Cam goes sprawling, a flag goes flying, fight nearly breaks out. R- Roger, what actually got called on this play in the end? Okay, so what got called was probably what shouldn't have been called on this play. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let, again, important to differentiate between a defenseless player and a runner. Now, Cam at the stage where he was with the ball was very clearly a runner and not a quarterback. Now, he doesn't get the same protections as a runner as he does a quarterback. So even though he was heading for the sideline, he was still slightly angling upfield. Now, defender is quite rightly within his territory to say, well, no, I'm not going to give you extra yards just because you're a quarterback. You're now a runner. You should be expecting to get hit because I'm going to try and stop you going forward and you're going to try and go forward and there's going to be a, a collision. Cam wasn't particularly ready for this collision because he was strolling towards the sideline thinking he's going out of bounds but he was hit inbounds and the the second uh, question mark about this play is to do with whether he was hit in the head and neck area there was helmet contact but helmet contact isn't necessarily a foul not all helmet contact is a foul some people have this um 
misconception that helmet to helmet is always a foul. It's not. There are specific occasions when either a use of a helmet, which is lowering the helmet to initiate contact, um, and that can be called, regardless of whether you hit a helmet, just hitting a player in his body with the head of the crown of your helmet is a foul. Um, and that is an illegal use of the helmet or hitting a player in the head with your helmet. That's also a, a foul if you lower your head to initiate that contact. However, two players, particularly a runner uh, going up against a defender, often they're going to drop their shoulder to basically charge through the defender and the defender is going to naturally drop his shoulder into that contact shoulder to shoulder. So what we had was a shoulder going into Cam Newton's shoulder and then a follow through to the head, which was incidental helmet contact, not uh, use of helmet because he didn't lower his helmet to attack with his helmet. And that's the difference between those, uh, why it should or shouldn't have been called there in my opinion. Now, the other question mark that on that play is, was he out of bounds? Because you can't hit a player who's obviously out of bounds, um, but he wasn't. He was clearly still in bounds when he was hit. So it wasn't a late hit, unnecessary roughness. And it wasn't the use of helmet because he didn't uh, lower his head to initiate that contact. So it shouldn't have been a foul, in my opinion. Yeah, it definitely looked very suspect on the play. I can, as it was under going, I can understand it? why it was called because, yeah. you know, uh, we we are trying to get those type of helmet to helmet fouls out of the game, and if somebody does lower their helmet to take him out, then that would be a foul. But yeah, there, there wasn't enough inclination really to call it a helmet to helmet, and it's 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 pretty harsh on the defenders, especially with the scrambling quarterbacks nowadays. If that's Kyler Murray or Paddy Mahomes, they could go another five yards upfield at least. Absolutely, absolutely. So, where Thank do we draw so the much. line? Yeah, so from uh, some of the more serious calls of the week in the, the Arizona-New England game, we've got a few more light-hearted ones, I think, coming up. Kirk Cousins, who I am dubbing the Nicholas Cage of quarterbacks because nobody knows <laughs> if he's good or not. Uh, gets, Is that him in face-off or something else? <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, there's a, a great library of films we can pick from. He's got a, he's got a Captain Corelli's mandolin in there somewhere, but yeah, you should, we'll true. find out. Um but he gets a penalty for an illegal forward pass. So set the scene for us, Roger. Okay. What did Kirk do wrong this time? So it's interesting, actually, because last week we actually had an illegal forward pass, and, and you don't see them very often. Um, and last week's was um, a Tom Brady illegal forward pass. And what he did in that example was he threw the pass forward. It was batted by a lineman directly back into his hands, and then he threw it downfield to a receiver. So that's one type of illegal forward pass, the second pass on the play. Another type of illegal forward pass is a forward pass you make when you're beyond the line of scrimmage. Um, in this particular example, we had a third variation on that, which is an illegal forward pass that you make once you've gone beyond the line of scrimmage and then come back and throw it from behind the line of scrimmage. <laughs> What's particularly weird about um, the last week's one and this week's one. Now, last week's one came up as a, a discussion point because the Jaggy was challenged to play. Um, I'm just trying to think now when the sequence of events, but anyway, we'll, we'll cover that on the other, come back to the blog later for that one and remind myself. But uh, yeah, on this particular one, uh, the, 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 the weird thing about it is the way that the penalty is enforced. If he'd have thrown the ball once he'd gone past the line of scrimmage, there would be a penalty and a loss of down. However, because it was a 
throw from behind the line of scrimmage, it's not a loss of down penalty. And so it's a weird one in that you That's expect them to actually sort of say, okay, there's a penalty and a loss of down, like there would be in a, an illegal forward pass when you've gone beyond the line of scrimmage. Now, the logic behind this is to do with the fact that if you do run beyond the line of scrimmage and then make the illegal forward pass, you're given the forward progress to the point that you made on the run and then you're penalised from that point. In the other example, you come back to the line of scrimmage, uh, previous line of scrimmage, and enforce a penalty from there. So that's why there's a difference. But there is an inconsistency between the different types of illegal forward passes and where the loss of down should be being called on them. And um, there certainly is... Um, a swell of opinion to try and get some of the rules changed and codified on this so that they're a little bit more consistent in terms of uh, how they're enforced to make it a little bit more fair. It's definitely not something we see every week, well, apart, apart from the last two weeks, uh, these <laughs> illegal forward passes. But So are you saying that Kirk Cousins actually did something very right by stepping back again and then throwing, his, throwing the pass? Sorry, say, um, I say he did it right, not consciously. I don't think he... He, he, he thought, oh, the penalty would be less if I do it from behind here. Uh, I, I just think he realised in his head that he was running and then realised, oh, hell, I want to pass. I can't pass from beyond the line of scrimmage. I, want to, I need to make sure I'm back behind the line of scrimmage. I wasn't sure exactly where he was. Um, and it just so happens the, the penalty enforcement is better. I don't think he was conscious of it at the time. At least if he was, I'd be amazed. We <laughs> wouldn't know the difference further. between two penalties. So, uh, no, I, you know, until you just said it, I had no idea I really <laughs> about it. Um, and then there was another point in this game as well with, uh, uh, I think it's Minnesota managed to use three coaches' challenges. Yeah, so let's look at coaches' challenge for a second because... We see them occasionally, and let's just remind ourselves of the rules around coaches' challenge. Outside the last two minutes of each half, a coach can challenge certain aspects of a play. So they can no longer challenge pass interference. Thankfully, we got rid of that one in the last year's review. However, they can challenge you know, things like, it was it a catch? Wasn't it a catch? Did the runner run out of bounds before the particular spot he was actually given was it was it a touchdown did he get across the line those sort of things so fairly specific but uh, challengeable aspects of the play now a coach is entitled to two challenges a game however if they win two challenges in a game they're entitled to a third challenge so this was why this was unusual in that um the the coach actually got three challenges. So that in itself is quite rare because you rarely find coaches being good enough to know the rules and to have an overturn against the officials who are watching the play. Even with video replay and even with people in the booth advising them, they don't generally get it right on challenges. Uh, more often than not, in fact, they get it wrong on challenges. Um, however, uh, they did get two challenges right on this play and they got a third challenge as a result. Now, it's only the uh, third time in the last 10 years that a coach has actually had a third challenge. Um, so that's how rare it is. So wow. yeah, we saw crazy. a rare thing that happened. What's uh, not rare, though, is coaches not winning that third challenge. <laughs> so whilst they might be on you know, a roll to actually get better than most coaches by getting the third challenge, no coach has ever won three challenges in a row. So he was consistent in this one, and he lost the third. Uh... Well, they can only go so far, can't they? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Thanks, Roger. Um, a little bit more silliness now. A little bit more silliness. Tyreek Hill 
made himself at home in the Tampa Bay end zone in the first it quarter. It was great, wasn't Bucks it? Chief. He was loving himself, wasn't he? But did he go a bit too far in his celebrations, Roger? He pulled out a Madden move on Sunday, finishing his, uh, it finished his second touchdown catch of the quarter by backflipping into the end zone. Yeah. So a couple of things, and and why some people think this should have been called for unsportsmanlike conduct is they're used to watching a lot of college ball. And if you watch college, any acts that um, are considered to be taunting the opposition are fouls. And taunting could be everything to do with, uh, you know, doing a Superman move, banging your chest when you get up after a tackle over the top of the player. That's taunting. you can actually taunt by um, throwing the ball at the opposition. Uh, there are a number of ways you can taunt, making a gesture at the opposition, whether that be something rude. Um, Tyreek Hill potentially waved goodbye, I think, if you were being generous mm-hmm. or he stuck two fingers up at the uh, opposition as he was running into the end zone on one of his plays, backflipped into the other. However, this isn't college. The NFL used to be called the No Fun League um, because they didn't have any uh, tolerance for celebrations. They've got better, uh, I think it's better, uh, over the years. And, and now you see players celebrating, sometimes a little too far. And certainly, I, I, I don't know if everybody else, but I'm getting bored of the uh, team that's done something good and they all run into the end zone to have the picture taken. Even as a photographer, I'm bored of that one. You know, uh, oh, come it's, on. It's getting worse. They've got screens. Different. They've got screens so they can see themselves now, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, uh, 2020 hits again, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so Tyreek Hill did a couple of things that would in college have been called for unsportsmanlike conduct. And in college, if you'd had two of those, he would have been ejected on mm-hmm. the second one. Um, but in the NFL, no. Uh, if you don't direct it at the opposition, then you'll generally get away with it. So spiking the ball, if you spike the ball in the end zone, that's not a foul. If you spike the ball at an opponent, that is a foul. That's the sort of line to draw. This seems like a fair distinction to make between the two. It's, you know, you, you want them celebrating these touchdowns because they are rare, especially for some teams. But, <laughs> I mean, uh, do you think he didn't get called on it as well just because, I mean, technically he hadn't scored yet? No, um, because, uh, again, in college, uh, if, if you do one of those fouls on the way into the end zone, still your touchdown won't count. Oh, God. Whereas in high school, if I, I'm not high school of full rules officiate, but I think from uh, listening to other officials, in high school, they would let the touchdown count and then penalise afterwards. But in, in, in college, no, it would be pulled back for the touchdown and they would, um, let's say it was done at the three-yard line going in, like high-stepping or something like that as they was going in, it would be penalised 15 yards from the three-yard going back in and it'd be first and 10 from there. Uh, so no, I don't think it was because he was not in yet. Um, I think it was just not really directed directly at an opponent. And I think that's the differentiation that we need to make here. Fair enough. I think for me, it's don't celebrate until you're in the end zone. We've seen <laughs> DK Metcalf, we've seen Deshaun Jackson. You, you don't want to be doing that. No, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I was a player, I mean, for, for me, I, I was um, taught, look like you be that you should be there. So this is nothing special for me. I'm in the end zone. I'm scoring. That's that's what I'd expect to do. So I'm not going to make, you know, call attention to myself because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's my difference between uh, getting in and celebrating. Psychological warfare. I like it. Uh, so now on to a, a celebration that did get flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct, um, despite being a little bit 
more minor than a, a backflip into the end zone. It's Josh Allen scoring a TD, rushing and diving for the pylon. And then as he gets up in that little area between the end zone and the crowd where, Roger, you find yourselves quite a lot of times on NFL games, I think, uh, yep. he decides to spin the football right at the feet of the defender that he just beat. Yeah. Uh, he so, must know the rules. Come on. Uh, you'd, th- you'd like to think, wouldn't you? I, I, unfortunately, in the heat of the moment, um, sometimes blood rushes to the head and he, he Alan had a great play that was a great dive for a touchdown yep. and getting the ball over the pylon makes it a touchdown um we talked about this um, with Suk in the past in terms of you know what do you need to do in order to get a touchdown and Alan did a great job there unfortunately um in his excitement about getting in he um took a little bit too far and not just spinning the ball but spinning the ball at the defender um and that is taunting. Uh, the, the reason why taunting is a foul is worth looking at is um, because what inevitably happens when players are taunted is that they end up retaliating. So either you end up in a fight because the aggrieved party has not only just lost a touchdown and his team's gone down, but now is you know somebody's rubbing his face in it. So inevitably they they get a bit irate at this and um, not necessarily at the time but certainly it can it can turn into an escalation later in the game when he's got a chance to take out that uh, quarterback and uh, might do it in a say a little bit more rough than normal <laughs> yes uh, at, at the risk of sounding like uh, monica Geller from friends the rules are there to control the fun guys They're there <laughs> to make sure it doesn't go too far and uh, he was definitely trying to incite his opponent wasn't he it, I, i'm old enough to remember um the um Dallas San Francisco games when um, uh, when they were good celebrate on the end in the, in the middle of the fifty and um, on the star and take yeah. a poop on the star and things yeah. like that and that's what happens and escalates if you're not careful so uh, yeah I mean I didn't quite understand the Bills were up by eighteen at this point it's not like it was a, a looking like a close game it was a close yeah. game in the end but at this point Josh Allen's steaming away with it but. Anyway, in that in that very same game, there was a very very odd play on first glance. Uh, Josh Allen was getting hit all game long by the Chargers. I was covering the the game for this week's podcast and was enjoying watching him get sacked as I was playing against him in fantasy. Uh, but on this play, the defenders managed to break through directly in front of Josh Allen. He motions to pass, and the ball hits the defender in the face point blank and the ball goes skidding back towards the Bills' own goal line behind Josh Allen. And it eventually ends up out of bounds and gets ruled as a fumble on the field. A lot to break down in this one, Roger. So what on earth happened? Okay, so the ruling on the field was, as you quite rightly point out, a fumble. Um, It was challenged, and the reason it was challenged is because the quarterback, in his movement with the ball although maybe not intentionally trying to do so, he was moving with control of the ball, his hand forward, which is a forward pass in motion. And then the ball came out by hitting the defender directly within an inch of leaving his hand and coming, rebounding back again. It doesn't matter whether he intended to throw it into his face or otherwise, not taunting wise, um, (laughs) It just so happens that the, from the ruling point of view, a forward pass is where the pass goes forward from the, the place it was passed from. And even though that was an inch, it's still a forward pass. Whatever it touches going forward is what differentiates it as being a forward pass. So the fact it went an inch forward and hit a player's face mask and came hurtling back 
it was still a pass. And then because nobody caught that pass, it went to ground. It's an incomplete pass. So correctly overruled in replay. But um, it was un easy to understand why that didn't necessarily look that way because it certainly looked like the player's helmet was coming in on the ball and it wasn't necessarily a pass. But uh, yeah, so it was a, a, a quite good overturn and a good challenge. Yeah, I thought it was a fumble at first from, from seeing it. And then there was one angle in particular, which I think, so all of the, the plays that we talk about are, should be up on our social media feeds at some point. And there's a one very good angle that you can see. And it is it's literally an inch, an inch and a half where it just yeah. leaves his hand. I would, I would still suggest that he was looking to tuck the ball and you get into the whole tuck rule kind of <laughs> situation again. But yeah. I mean, it, it's only the Bills charges. We, we don't need too much. They don't need a whole rule making for for this one situation, but it was it was quite interesting because the one thing I really liked about it was the fact that they called it a fumble and let it go on. Yes, we've we've seen a lot where the, a lot of people were just blown that dead. The, the the danger and and this is worth talking about because we have mentioned it before, but worth bringing it up again. I'm in general in agreement with you, which is if you can't be sure what you saw as an official, let it play out and let replay determine it. Because if you don't, and you go with what you think might be the case, and in, in your example, let's just take you as the official, you thought it was a fumble, you therefore let it go as a fumble. Now, if I saw it as a forward pass, because I was looking from that angle where you said that there was only one angle that uh, you could see it from, I might decide, no, it's a forward pass that's incomplete, I'll blow it dead. What we've got then is if that ball is subsequently recovered by the defence, let's take in the example, and run back in for a touchdown, they won't get that touchdown because I've blown the whistle, everybody stopped playing. Yeah. Now, on the surface of it, that sounds sensible. The only problem is that in replay, replay can only overturn something that is clear and obvious. So let's take that same example again. And the one official did see that it went forward by an inch and bounced back off the face mask. But he says, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm fairly certain that that's what happened. And when replay shows it, they didn't show the angle that he had. Therefore, replay can't overturn it. Suddenly, the ruling on the field stands, and therefore it's a fumble, when really that official had a fairly good, clear idea that it wasn't a fumble. So if he, if he saw it as an incomplete pass, he should blow it dead as an incomplete pass, even though on some occasions, obviously, they might be wrong or there might be some angle that shows something different. That's the difficulty, is if you let it go, then that will be the play that will stand unless there's very clear and obvious evidence to the contrary. Yeah, I think that comes with the territory of having multiple people with multiple whistles all looking at the same play, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it is. And, but generally speaking, they're not all looking at the same thing either, which is no. a, quite an important differentiator between different officials are watching different areas of responsibility. So in a forward pass situation like that, you will generally have only one official who will be the person responsible for that call. Um, and that would be the referee in this example. You might have some help from the centre judge if he wasn't watching a particular block up the middle or watching some defenders that are already engaged. Uh, but generally speaking, everybody else downfield will be looking at receivers, looking at line play, blocking, etc. So there is only one guy probably in that example that's going to see that play. And if he didn't rule it the right way and then replay didn't have anything clear, then unfortunately 
it goes back to what was called on the field. So whilst on the surface of it, letting it play out seemed like a good idea, it is fraught with dangers and you will have some situations where the wrong thing is happens because you let it play out and you just couldn't see it otherwise. Yeah, I think it's something that we're, we're seeing in a lot of sports at the moment is it's not just the use of replay, it's the exact use of replay in every possible situation. And I, So I watch a lot of rugby, so I would be leaning towards a style that they have in uh, definitely rugby league and rugby union where the referee sends the call up and says, I think this is what happened, I'm not 100%, which is it's kind of what we have at the moment in the NFL, but there's a very it's the whole clear and obvious and it's the same with var in football it's are we holding it are we holding the call on the field to too high of a standard when it goes to replay uh, no i think you should hold the call on the field to be the thing that you you've got to say something was clear and obvious against that and and that's really where it comes back to making sure you call what you know you've seen rather what you think you've seen um, but the call on the field should be right. You know, you've got those officials specifically looking at those angles. They are close to the play, and they might see something that we don't see on video. So you know, they're there for a reason. Otherwise, we might as well just have video refs. Very true. Very true. Is there a is there a situation in the NFL where that referee will be talking with the replay booth themselves and helping to make the decision, or is it very black and white? Um, it's fairly black and white on the field. Uh, generally speaking, and this is a, a, an overall principle, the call on the field is given and then replay will then look at that call to see if there's anything to say, no, it shouldn't be that. There are some situations where you will have them coordinating with each other and replay will get involved to help out on the call. So give an example. You've got a couple of um, receiver and a, a back running downfield at high speed, and there's a pass interference on, on the play. The official's running down the field with them. He throws his flag. Because he's moving, potentially, he doesn't get the flag in the right place. And replay can get involved to go back and look at it and say, yep, yeah, I can see where your flag should have been on this. You did call pass interference quite rightly. I'm not going to tell you yes it or no, it was or wasn't, but I can tell you your flag wasn't in the right place and it should have been on the seven-yard line, not on the two-yard line where it ended up. That sort of thing will be the, the communication they have. So they will leave their on-field mics open so replay can hear what they're, they're calling on the field and then Rike can help out in certain circumstances. Interesting. Well, uh, I think that's all the points that we had to discuss this week, Roger. Um, I'm sure you'll be back with another session next week with even more random rules and technical things <laughs> that nobody else knew existed apart from you. But uh, It's not just me, but yes, um, there to help out. Oh, I always feel like I've learned something whenever I listen to this each week. So it's it's yes. very good. It's good. good. Um, yeah, so make sure you're hitting up all the other Fourth and Inches podcasts that will be sent out across the week. We'll have a flagship show and the college boys will be talking college ball all week as well. And uh, thank you very much, Roger. You're welcome. And just remember, everybody, the uh, link to the plays we've discussed will be in the podcast description. Thanks.